You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Oh, hey, guys, this is Joe Sinnott uh, speaking for the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Fantastic Four, Episode 1, covering a period of the Fantastic Four from 1961 to 1963. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your Fantastic Four host, Eric Findlay. This is the beginning of the Marvel Universe. And if you are listening to these episodes and trying to kind of listen to them chronologically as Marvel kind of unfolds, uh, this is the beginning. Oh, yeah. It's really neat to go back to these original issues because pretty much every issue has a first of some kind. Oh, yeah. Or several and, firsts. Or several firsts, <laughs> yeah. And and then to see where they've gone from, from that point till now is really neat. I do want to note, if you're joining us for the very first time, that yeah, we're following the mapping of the Epic Collections, Marvel's Epic Collection trade paperbacks. So one episode will focus on one volume of the trade paperbacks. Uh, sometimes if our conversation is long, I have to split that in two. But we follow that mapping and because of that the epic collections are released out of order so that you can experience many different eras of these long-running titles and you're not stuck in one particular era and that's what we've been doing too we've been jumping around so this is i think our fourth fantastic four episode but it's episode one (laughs) so you'll have to search back through the archives to see which order you want to listen to our episodes in these are some of the earliest comics that i even remember reading because back when we were kids we're, we're brothers for those of you who don't don't know. You bought Fantastic Four quite often. I did. My first, uh, I mentioned this in another, uh, actually I think it was our last epic Fantastic Four episode. Mm-hmm. My first comic was Fantastic Four 358. And now here we are back at number one. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, um, I I was reading this um, since, since we were separated a little bit and uh, I didn't have access to your epic volume. I've been reading out of the Marvel Masterworks uh, 25th anniversary release. Yeah. And there, there are quite a few differences. Uh, there's a lot of differences in coloring. It doesn't have the pinup pages, but it does have a really neat uh, uh, foreword by Stan Lee on there. So so this was like, in addition to the, the issues that I was picking up kind of monthly or whatever, uh, this was probably probably one of the I got this book fairly early on in my comic collecting days and so I was able to go back and read these early issues I gave you this book yeah yeah I gave it to you I think it's a birthday present I and this was this is the original edition because I know that the masterworks have been reprinted quite a few times these these early volumes this one came out in the 80s yeah and the, the trade paperbacks weren't really a thing collections weren't a thing back in the 80s no. it was kind of unprecedented to have a collection like this Th- this was the only way to read some of those early issues and uh, the interest thing is that this one is volume two but volume one is the spider-man masterworks 
collection. Right. So it's different from the epic collections where right. they, they've numbered them by the, the line or the title or the character. Right. The Masterworks, they always did that they because it wasn't, uh, it wasn't character specific. It was just a celebration of all of Marvel from the 60s. Right. So volume one was Spider-Man. Volume two was Fantastic Four. Volume three is X-Men. They are about to hit volume 300 now. Oh, nice. Uh, I think in a couple of months or something. Yeah. <laughs> so they've been doing it for a long time. But this is what makes the epic collection so interesting and so useful is that whenever Marvel and other and other um, comic companies as well went to collect the early issues, they'd always start from number one. Yeah. And then at some point, sales would drop off. And, and then the line they, would be canceled. The line would be canceled. Yeah. And then they decide to do it again. And they start from number one again. Yeah. And so then you get all these periods of, t- of uh, comics where they've never been reprinted. Mm-hmm. So this material has been reprinted so many times. So many times. In addition to the fact that even within Fantastic Four comics, the origin story is told many times over. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so yeah, issue number one for sure. But yeah, you can buy these issues in, um, in omnibus form. You can buy them Masterworks. There's a the hardcover and soft cover, which, by the way, the soft cover masterworks because they're a lot more recent, have the original coloring. They have mm. the pinup pages. I yeah. think they even have the letter pages. I, I even have one single issue of a Marvel Masterworks Fantastic Four number one, right? With the gray, they, with yeah, the gray with the gray border, border around yes, the silver border, right. yeah, yep. And I think they've they've done a number one facsimile edition more recently as well. Yep. And uh, it's just and then the essentials, the black and white. Oh, the volumes, essentials, yeah, of course. It's just you can get this in any way that you could possibly want. Um, and and here it is. Yeah. And, and the, it's for good reason. This is the formation of the Marvel Universe. Everything that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby are known for starts, it really kind of starts here. Yeah. In case you don't know, the Justice League debuted in 1960. And this was the first sort of really big comic that had a team in it mm-hmm. um, around that time. And it was a huge success. Yeah, it was a big deal. And so after seeing its success, um, Stan Lee's boss sort of said to him, hey, Marvel should have its own superhero team. Go make a superhero team book. And so Stan went off and he didn't really want to make a team of like Superman-like characters, kind of like the Justice League, where it's people who just come together for the big battle and then they go their separate ways again. He wanted to make ones that could be relatable to everyone, uh, people with their own personal problems and faults. Uh, people that maybe don't always quite get along with each other, but really complement each other really well. That decision colors all of Marvel Comics. Oh, it, totally. It's the main thing that differentiates them between DC, who have the the iconic status, the, God, the, the godlike paragons. status. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, Marvel doesn't doesn't fit that sort of mold. And and that's really one of the big reasons why I read more Marvel growing up than mm-hmm. DC, because yeah. I sort of felt DC characters are all kind of the same. They all have super huge powers and not many weaknesses, and then they're always going to win. Whereas Marvel characters, you can relate to them more with personal problems not necessarily like a 10 year old would you know be able to relate to uh, Iron Man's alcoholism or something like that <laughs> but but you can relate that in the sense that even though they're heroes they still have problems they're still real yeah, yeah and and maybe they don't 
always win. Yep. And I think that's a product of Marvel creating stuff in the 60s because DC's characters right. coming from the, the 30s, 40s, the 40s yeah. uh, during, especially um, during the wartime when there was a lot of pro-America and like, we can win, we can do this. What they were looking era. for is the character that would defeat the Nazis or, yeah. yeah. And so you have those characters that become those ultra superpowers because of that. And then Marvel uh, coming in in the 60s when we're in the Cold War and this is post-World War II. It's a yep. very different era. And that's a huge part of this book. Yeah. And they, they treat their characters very, very differently here. It's so neat to just think about uh, the, the different eras that they come from and, and how that has really affected the way that they approach their, their books. And if you look at characters that DC created in the 60s, you'll probably find the same thing as well. In fact, the, their writing style changes in the 60s to inject more of that humanity and more of the, the personal problems as well. And that might be because of the time. It might be because, because of Marvel's success. Uh, I don't know. They're, they're also sharing a lot of the same writers and artists <laughs> around this time yeah. as well. So on a related tangent, I'm, I'm a math teacher in high school, but when I was a substitute teacher, I once had to substitute for an English lit class and perfect for a math teacher right exactly no uh <laughs> so i don't really know much about that at all and the the thing that we were supposed to do in that class was read this uh forward to a biography on shakespeare and then sort of talk about it a little bit and as i'm reading through this biography of shakespeare it's talking about how shakespeare was so different from all of his uh, contemporaries because his characters were deeply flawed characters and not like your paragon hero like in everybody <laughs> else's plays and so i turned the class into a Marvel versus DC conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So you're saying that Stanley is Shakespeare. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Oh boy. Okay, so we haven't really talked about what we're going to get into in this episode specifically. What right. issues are we covering? We are covering issues 1 to 18. And this is uh yep, this is the entirety of the first epic collection, uh, the first few years and uh and yeah, man, we're going to meet a whole ton of new characters and um new new concepts and it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, a couple other things you might need to know before we jump into this. Similar to other comics of the time like tales of suspense or something like that these stories are broken down into chapters or parts which is not something you see in modern comics mm -hmm. normally you buy one issue and it is just one continuous story here they break the one issue into like four to five page chapters and i think even by the time they reach their 12th issue or something they they even do away with that i mean that doesn't last through yeah. this entire book yeah it makes sense for the tales of suspense type comics because there might be several unrelated stories within that one issue issue um, but when you have the entire issue focusing on one story then it makes less sense to break it up like that you're wasting a lot of uh, retail space with those big titles well comic books were all anthology sort of um, in the, in that style back yeah. then uh, seldom would you find a comic where the in, there would be one singular story well, exactly. for a whole 22 pages and I think that had to do with payment structure mm -hmm. yeah I, re I think I read this somewhere and someone might correct me if I'm wrong but breaking up um, a fantastic four issue into five chapters 
emulates the same sort of uh, payment structure or paying by page rate or paying by story or something as if, you know, there were actually five stories Mm -hmm. in there. I can't remember. Maybe they did that for scheduling or something. I, uh, I, it escapes me off the top of my head right now. Yeah. Um, Also, as was mentioned, this is right in the middle of the space race uh, in the Cold War era. They hadn't reached the moon yet. Right. And so uh, that drives this entire plot, really. Yeah. So there's also, there's often mention of like competing with communists getting to the moon first yeah uh that kind of a thing um one other thing if you're familiar with the fantastic four one difference of these early issues is that the human torch can only be on fire for a limited amount of time the more that he uses his flame the faster he goes out and then he needs like five minutes or something before he can actually flame on again there are a lot of differences with most of the characters uh like sue only has the ability to turn herself invisible right i was going to mention that as well but the the other two their powers are fairly consistent um with modern uh the modern versions of their powers but those two are very very different yeah except that ben nowadays can turn back to ben Grimm for one day out of the year that's right (laughs) (laughs) that's a little different Oh yeah, before we get into our issues, I asked on Facebook for uh, some comments on this particular volume. Um, uh, actually, all my, uh, actually, I asked on Twitter and Instagram, and all of my comments actually come from Twitter. So <laughs> I'm going to go from here. Uh, Nathaniel says, this was better than I expected. Interesting how much of the Marvel Universe gets set up in these early days of the House of Ideas, but also kind of painful and not really my thing. Psyched to pick up the next few volumes. Yeah, I, I had the same reaction when, I, uh, when we were talking about doing this volume yeah you grumbled at me i was like oh those (laughs) ones are so tough to get through and you know they kind of are in some ways but in other ways not as bad as like the early ant-man issues or something like that or the, the like the werewolf by night and the the early moon Knight issues those ones were tough to get through i think that de- a lot depends on the writers yeah. i agree when we were doing that moon Knight, the first moon Knight episode because uh, that's the 70s so that's a, a right. quite a ways away but we had some weird fill-in issues and you know it's th- that that series fleshed out as it went along with fantastic four I, I, and also with stan lee's writing the thing to remember is that depending on the artist he's working with and especially as he moved further into the 60s he was less and less involved because he got more and more busy busy with other titles and being an editor and the business side of things so these early days of fantastic four and, and then moving forward, especially when you get through into like the coming of Galactus, yeah. uh, Stanley does some of his best work in Fantastic Four. Yeah. Ant-Man, I found quite enjoyable. But when you read his stuff with like X-Men, which started a few years later, it's rough, those early X-Men issues. And it might also have to do with the, the artist as well, because um, on these early days, they were doing um, what later became known as the Marvel Method. Yeah, yeah. The Marvel Method being has, Stanley would have his plot. In fact, one of the bonus features in here is the plot of Fantastic Four number one as he gave it to Jack Kirby, which is cool. Uh, and then Jack would take it, create all of the page layouts. He'd determine the flow of the story. He'd break it up into 22 pages. He'd do all of the artwork. Then he would send it back to Stan and Stan would put in the dialogue. Um, and so... So the script wasn't even written until after the art 
Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of this, the storytelling, really depends on how well your artist is. Mm -hmm. Jack Kirby stuck around X-Men for just a small handful of issues, and then it was handed off to somebody else who wasn't as good. And so therefore, Stan, when he gets the script, over-dialogues it in order to compensate for the bad storytelling, Mm -hmm. and then you just get a really rough comic well bad storytelling <laughs> through the art through the, well yes. yeah that's what yeah, i mean right. yeah yeah but this one i found found was good and the, the silver age is not for everybody it's a lot campier it's a lot more simplistic in its just its way of storytelling and um a lot more narration yeah. it takes a lot longer to read one issue than it does to read an issue of brian michael bendas in the, in the <laughs> 2000s um so yeah it's not everybody's bag yeah. and so nathaniel here said it wasn't really his thing and i can i can see that i yeah. understand and um, on the other hand, Chris says, I love this volume. It's barely even a superhero comic at first, more of a golden age pulp adventure comic. The book is packed with ideas and the Kirby art is rich and textured. Lots of fun, tiny panels. However, if you read this and don't like it, definitely don't give up on Kirby's FF. Yeah. Just go ahead and buy epic number three or four. Starting with issue number 44, Kirby hits a whole new level. And from that point oh, on totally. for about two years, Kirby Kirby makes some of the best comics that have ever been created. And it's true. We're we're talking about the Inhuman saga, basically, through that era and and coming of Galactus, the introduction of Black Panther and Wakanda. There's just some... Silver Surfer. Yeah, there's amazing, amazing stuff. And those are the issues I really want to get with you. um, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, those will be really, really great. Because those ones are the ones that that haven't really been reprinted, as we said before. Except for Masterworks and Omnibus. Yeah, Yeah. if you spend all that money on them. (laughs) Yes. Um, But so they haven't really been reprinted and they're also ones that are difficult to find because they're expensive because they're that old, early yeah, exactly um so like even though yeah fantastic four number one through ten would be you know hundreds of thousands of dollars if not more yeah you can still read them yep it's wonderful but when you get into like the 30s or the issues 30 or 40 or something like that uh they haven't been reprinted and you're gonna have to shell out big bucks to get those yeah it's true so it's nice that the epic collections have gone that far in fact the as of this recording the it was announced that the sixth volume of Fantastic Four will be coming out later in 2020 and that's going to be the conclusion to Jack Kirby's run. So all of Stan and Jack Kirby will be done in epic form. One thing that I really agree with with Chris though is um, when he says this isn't really even a superhero comic. Right. And I said this before that's one of my favorite things about the Fantastic Four. It's not about the big fight. It's not about like defeating crime or anything like that. It's it's an adventure. It's scientific exploration. It's uh, navigating life as a family. And those are the things that I really like about Fantastic Four. It doesn't come off as much in this volume. Most of the stories in this volume are reactionary. Yes. They have to deal with stuff that's happening to them, characters that are coming at them. Right, but more of an adventure the, way. Yeah, rather than the exploration part of it. But right. uh, that part comes later. Yeah, yeah. They, they have some stuff to smooth out. Yeah, but even just the fact that uh, Reed is, is trying to find a cure for Ben. Yep. There's some scientific exploration right there. Right, and, that's, and, the, and the reason his motives are family related or family oriented even though ben comes off as a a jerk a lot in this (laughs) volume someone by the handle mr doctor says he just finished this not too long ago and he loved it it's amazing how quickly the series built momentum first issue is the mole man second the scrolls fourth the reemergence of namor from the golden age the fifth has the intro to dr doom not a bad start over a short amount of time very true very true and then the hive says definitely better than most would expect the stories are a lot of fun and i feel connected 
connection to all the characters. That's good. And that I think that goes to the, the longevity of these characters, the fact that they're all still around. These days you see uh, new characters come up and, you know, while that one writer is on the story, uh, on that on that title, that character sticks around and then when another writer comes along, they just vanish. Yeah, or every, every writer wants to have their unique makeup of characters on their team. Right. So like the X-Men and the Avengers, they're always a different roster every time a new writer come on comes on board even even this day excalibur and new mutants it's always you have some of the core characters that are always there but it's always changing Mm -hmm. for fantastic four unless one of those characters is quote-unquote dead (laughs) um it's always those four yeah always and and their villains even if the roster of the fantastic four has changed the villains have been the same yep Raphael says i picked i picked it up when i decided to finally check out lee and kirby's historical run and i've been collecting each volume since it's a time capsule of a fun bygone era it's simple but with depth it's neat seeing the beginnings of several marvel characters concepts thank you everybody for your comments i appreciate you writing in and uh, i hope you will continue to do so as we move forward through these volumes but i think now we should move on to the issues yeah Starting with Fantastic Four number one, I should hope that I don't have to recap this for anybody listening to this, but I'm going to just briefly say that there are two parts to this issue. The first part deals with the origin and the second part deals with the Mole Man. The origin story is that uh, Reed has an experimental rocket that he wants to uh, take into outer space and the timing is perfect for them to go exactly right now. They can't wait for any government clearance or whatever. They have to go now. They go, there's an error, they're bombarded with cosmic rays and when they come back to earth they find that they all have supernatural powers they decide to use them for good let's just talk about this part before we move on to the mole man part sure i love the structure of this where the very first thing the very first page drops us into the middle of the story and the whole origin is actually told as a flashback i've actually noticed they did this for the first um like four or five issues it actually happens a few times where you get this like um not exactly a splash page but like a half page of your like the catch of the story the hook of the story yeah and it's in the middle and then we have to back up and sort of flash back a little bit to get going definitely is a very common storytelling trick yeah and, and it's it's very effective here because we don't know anything about the fantastic four yeah and all of a sudden reed richards is calling this team and they come and one's invisible and one's on fire and one's a monster like what the heck is this we have no idea and then we get the backstory so it's it's a really really cool way to tell it um it's basically a i would say a perfect origin story told in like eight pages and even the fact that while there is a picture of reed at the very top of the page the first time in the story you see him he's all shadowy so you're kind of like ooh, yeah who is this mystery mystery guy guy. yeah totally yeah i i love it it's just so great and this it's like there are strong archetypes right off the bat Every character is clearly defined, yeah. and they get more nuanced as they go along, of yeah, course, totally. but you can't have that in the first issue. you got to have your very dramatic, like, he's the hot-headed one, he's, um, she's, she's the caring one, he's the smart one, you know, right. it's clearly defined right off the bat who is who, what role they're going to play, and I love it. Now, one thing that I often notice going back to these early issues is that they were pretty careless with their powers in these early comics, in these early issues. Johnny just is on fire 
fire in a car and <laughs> yeah. it like just melts the car sue is invisible and goes running through the streets shoving people and knocking them over causing so much money and damage yeah, yeah. Uh, well and and the thing he just goes in the sewers and he's like i think this is where i need to be and he just busts out of there right oh yeah and he like he <laughs> in the middle the of the street call. he totally ruins the a store's front end right like, that prop that that poor guy who owns that suit shop probably had to close for several months for the right. repairs because it's not just the door it's like the wall as well yeah, yeah. structural damage to the whole building they were they were really careless with their powers in those early days but that's the fun and the excitement kind of, of of these characters yeah. and just the fact that they they don't care they just they're yeah. they're just who they are you um, know the the other part that i think really works with how you were saying um we're dropped right in the middle of the story is that there's actually not even a mention of what their goal is just or even why they have to go right away but they know they know that oh this is something that needs to be uh, that's important that, that is urgent yeah we want to know what, what's so yeah. urgent as well totally Th- this first this origin story is something that is also consistently talked about reworked mentioned like all throughout FF history there's probably not a single panel in this origin story that hasn't been revisited and expanded on oh. at some point oh definitely one of my favorite things in just recently a few months ago in the Dan Slot Fantastic Four um, the this plane that they go to has been now donated to a museum and they the Fantastic Four go and visit that museum and the thing uh, they have the black box from this spaceship on yeah. display and you can press the button and hear what what the Fantastic Four were saying in these in these pages here in this first issue yeah. and Ben's listening back and gets a little emotional and it's like PTSD from yeah. hearing that it's like wow what a great scene that was I loved and, it and there's like a little holographic projection and you and, and it showed or maybe it was his memory. I can't remember. It was his memory. Yeah. yeah. But then you see the exact the panel. Exact panels. Yeah. It was so cool. And like you can still, they're still mining this, this, these few pages yeah. for great material, even so many years later. And so that issue that you're talking about where they go and visit this, this ship in the museum, the story that follows that is that visit sparks Reed and Ben um, to actually recreate the ship. Yeah. Except this time with the proper shielding so they can actually do the proper, uh, to do the proper run yeah that's right because they don't actually accomplish that in this no. one yeah and in this in this issue they don't actually even say what their goal is right um a couple issues uh, down the road uh actually in issue two they say that it was to go to mars hmm. but uh in the first issue here they don't say what their goal is and it's been reworked now that their goal was to go to like another galaxy and they had a particular planet as their as their target yeah and so um the most recent one of the most recent uh, fantastic four issues at this time is they've rebuilt this ship and they go to that planet to see what it's like and i love valeria's reaction because she's smarter than reed yes and she's like really we're gonna go in this thing when we could go in that thing over there that i built this morning that will get us there in a fraction of the time yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) so funny yeah but there's the nostalgia factor yeah it is yeah it's great I, I still love Fantastic Four to this day. It's mm-hmm. uh, it, There's not a, a run in Fantastic Four that's really terrible. There's like, some slow parts, but slow it's, parts never, it's sure. never really like it's, bad. It's very consistently great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the world's greatest comic yeah. magazine. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else you want to say about this origin story? Yeah. Uh, first of all, they don't have costumes. Right. Uh, they don't have costumes until issue three. Second of all, the flight suits, the purple flight suits that they wear yep. are based on DC's Challengers of the Unknown. Right. And uh, this is something that Jack Kirby has actually come out and said. 
One thing that I only just realized reading it through this time is they don't live in New York in this first issue. They live in Central City. <laughs> Where the Flash lives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they live in a generic city called Central City. Yeah. And it's not until um, issue three that it actually says that they're in New York. Okay. Yeah. One of the interesting things through this these issues is that um, uh, technically, if you go by the continuity of what's happening in other comics, when, when Johnny Storm gets his own series in Strange Tales... He and Sue live in Glendale. They don't live in the Baxter building with yeah. everybody else. They have their own house. Um, and Johnny has a secret identity, um, which he he doesn't have a secret identity in Fantastic Four, but he, he does in Strange Tales. <laughs> he, he has no problem telling everybody. Yeah. The last thing that I think is, is really neat here is that as smart as Reed is, the failure is actually a surprise. In later retellings of this origin, Reed says openly, I'm not sure if the shields will hold. Hmm. But in this, in this very uh, first uh, telling, it's, no, the rocket's ready to go. And then when they encounter the, the cosmic radiation, he goes, oh, no, the shields weren't strong enough. So that, that changes his, the way, like his guilt. I oh, think. yeah. Yes. If he, if he knew that there was a possibility that there was going to be a mistake, and then he goes in and does it, yeah. that I think would be even, there would be even more guilt than if he thought he was sure, but then it ended up not working yeah and i think that's why they change it yeah like that but in this one it's just no no this is a surprise yeah oh no it's it's not strong enough and mm. then it causes them to crash and then as we see them crash and they start to develop their powers one thing that comes up is that ben clearly has feelings for sue yeah and this is something that gets picked up from time to time throughout the comics even after reed and sue get married even up to the point where well i guess before whenever whenever he's not dating alicia uh shall we move on to the mole man section yes. here the reason reed is calling all four of them is because he's discovered some tremors coming in the bermuda triangle and they would need to go investigate and they investigate and find an island of monsters they get sucked underneath and underground and there is the mole man who they find out is going is uh, kind of the leader of all these monsters is going to unleash them upon the surface world the mole man doesn't really have a name at this point because i think he was supposed to just be sort of a one-off throwaway character yeah um but he ends up coming back <laughs> quite a bit and uh, so they develop more of his backstory and give him a name and everything uh but this mole man's plan is a very strange one it's have the monsters dig out all the atomic power plants around the world so that they fall into the ground <laughs> yeah and then send the monsters to attack the surface world right what how do they relate how does that yeah. relate why, why wait until after the power plants are gone like maybe it's so that well if it's nighttime they won't have power and then we can like get them Sneak up dark, on them. <laughs> but they, there's no mention of nighttime so it's just a very strange plan but uh but that's a very small point in this entire thing yeah uh the really neat part is just the imagination of jack kirby with these different monsters and uh which is something actually he's been doing for a long time throughout right. the 50s even like jack kirby did a lot of monster stories for marvel mm. so this is actually a logical evolution of of what marvel comics was becoming in the 60s yeah, yeah. and the neat part is again jumping forward to now mole man's monsters still look exactly like this <laughs> yeah they do well and especially because anytime kirby anytime anyone revisits something that jack kirby has done they stay faithful to the way kirby oh, yeah. has done it exactly because it's jack kirby right at the very end i find reed is quite callous toward the the mole man at the end um they, he they fly out of there johnny 
has set the the tunnels on fire so they'll collapse so that they'll yeah. collapse and then yeah we've sealed the the mole man's empire forever and they say but where is the mole man and reed is just like i left him behind he'll never trouble anyone again <laughs> and then the, the island explodes and he's like he's destroyed the entire isle he sealed himself below forever oh, that's the best way there was no place for him in our world perhaps <laughs> he'll find peace down there <laughs> yeah and uh like like you said earlier um they become more developed and more nuanced um as they build in character over time and so this just goes to establish him as the very like calculating uh logical type person um right yeah just thinking about the science point of it the logic point of it well he the mole man himself admitted there wasn't a place for him in in the surface world which is why he went uh out and so logically well being trapped down there is better than him being trapped outside where he feels out of place i'd have to say that the second half um the second half of the issue is actually quite a bit weaker than the first half just because the mole man isn't that engaging with character and like the plot holes like you say with the the uh, um nuclear power plants and such yeah it's it, it's not as engaging um when i think of the issue number one i always think yeah this is such a great issue but it's really only because of the first half of right it. the origin part yeah um yeah if they had if the second part had maybe been like issue two with the scrolls yeah yeah but they didn't have enough space to do both well speaking of issue number two shall we move on to that one yeah sure uh this issue is titled fantastic four meet the scrolls from outer space um we have the fantastic four committing all these crimes and everybody starts to hate them and the police are after them but is it really the fantastic four no it is shape-shifting aliens who are taking their place as part of an elaborate plot to take over the earth yeah now marvel back in the 70s we already mentioned that jack kirby did a lot of monster stories that was one type of story that marvel did in their their you know anthology comics another type was horror stories and then they also did a lot of alien stories there were Mm -hmm. a lot of stories where a random alien group would come down to the planet they want to take it over they see something that scares them and then they go away or something like that we've got three of them in the first 10 issues yeah right exactly and um and that and so uh, when you think about that and if you are knowledgeable about the stuff that marvel was doing in this in the 50s these early fantastic four stories are pretty much exactly that they they often have that twist ending where they deal with the human psyche and uh and then have their their alien invasion stories they have their robot stories they have their dinosaur or their monster stories they have their communist stories yeah and i mean dr doom is essentially just a robot story right yeah but um but they're all with the same protagonists whereas those anthology books would have like a different character uh, every story yeah the human person would be a different different character and that's what gives this its charm because now we have uh, an ongoing narrative now we have characters that are going to develop uh, and they can react to it differently but the scrolls are simply just a one-off alien race yep or at this point they are (laughs) one-off and and you know being such an experimental book probably everything in this in in this uh epic collection is well except for dr doom who starts to show up more more and anymore everything else is probably just supposed to be a one-off yeah they were at the point where they didn't know if they uh if the books would get canceled or if the company would even go under like they were really just uh trying things to see what would work and this one took off which is why it's the blueprint for everything that came after okay so 
they introduce themselves at the beginning with their powers. They have a nice sequence at the very beginning where they all, sh they show us, the audience or the reader, what everybody can do. This is important in the second issue because if you didn't pick up the first issue, you need to get hooked right away. So they do sort of the same storytelling technique that we had in the first issue. And then it's quickly followed up by, um, by the scrolls revealing themselves to each other and to us, the reader and explaining how they mimicked the powers of the Fantastic Four. Right, and framed them, yeah. Right. Yeah, speaking, as you say, quickly, the, the pacing in this issue is really fast. It's a very breakneck, um, action-packed story. They cram a lot in here. They, they cram a ton in there, and there's really no room to slow down. Uh, it, and that's maybe why some of these issues are better when, than the others, because when Stanley slows down, that's when I tend to think he gets a little boring. Yeah. <laughs> so keeping things quick is really, really nice, and this one does that. Also on the list of firsts, uh, this is the first time of many times that the Fantastic Four are placed in, quote, specially constructed private cells. Oh, yeah, right. And the, the idea behind that is each cell has been designed to counter the powers of each member of the Fantastic Four, and they prove that they know their powers better than everybody else and are still able to escape. So, uh, like I said earlier, the origin in this one, uh, oh, th there's a retelling of the origin, which yep. again is important if you haven't seen it before. Um, but the origin is updated to mention that they were flying to Mars. And one of the interesting things that I find is that uh, Reed tricks the scrolls at the end by using clippings from oh, yeah. Strange Tales <laughs> and Journey into Mystery. That's right. And um, this is something that Stan Lee was a big fan of doing is trying to blur the line between what is the comic world and what is our world. In fact, in the uh, introduction in this Masterworks edition, he says, uh, but then we always did claim that superhero time operates differently than it does in the real world. Although I probably shouldn't say that lest some of you get the, uh, get the startling notion that Reed, Johnny, Sue, and Ben are merely works of fiction. <laughs> so he was a big proponent of, well, yeah, these are stories, but maybe, just maybe, they might be real. Well, we we do find out in a few issues that Reed himself helps Stan and Jack write these stories. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and Johnny is reading a Hulk ish uh, Hulk comic in one of them. Yep. Um, one thing I wanted to point out quickly is on page fifty two. A scroll turns into um, like a big spiky creature with spikes, spike balls for hands. And the same spiky creature is used in issue 358 when they travel to the scroll homeworld to rescue Alicia. Oh, right. Yeah. And then uh, I think Ben has to shoot a laser gun at it. Yeah. So that's another example of somebody uh, copying. I have those Paul Ryan. Yeah. Paul Ryan copying uh, Jack Kirby's design. Totally. Yeah. Uh, one thing that is a little strange is that there were four scrolls mm -hmm. and the Fantastic Four tie them up, go to the mothership to try and trick the, all the rest of the scrolls. They come back. There are three scrolls now. And Reed says, um, oh, where'd he go? The fourth one is on his way to another galaxy now with the rest of his invasion fleet. Except the fourth one didn't go with them and they wouldn't have let the fourth one go with them because <laughs> then he could tell them that it was all a trick. Right, totally. Yeah. So where's the fourth one? So where's one? the fourth one? <laughs> Yeah. And then it's also very strange in the ending here. The scrolls go, we hate being scrolls. We'd rather be anything else. I think that's a very strange 
like uh, statement to be making. Why would you be part of an invasion force if like you hate your own race that much? Because it's a totalitarian race. Yeah, maybe because they're told what to do, and that's uh, yeah, they have no choice. They yeah. have to be the the soldiers, and they were sent to to conquer this planet, yeah. maybe. But anyway, yeah, Reed turns them into cows. He turns them into cows, and. If you want to find out what happens to these scrolls, pick up a book called The Scroll Kill Crew. Crew with a K. <laughs> yeah. And that tells you more about what happens to these scrolls that turn into cows. Yeah, right. This issue has a pinup page at the very last. It's a, of the thing and has a, a nice portrait of Ben Grimm as as his human self. And at the very bottom it says, Don't miss amazing adult fantasy comics on sale now. That's of course Amazing Fantasy. Yep, that's yes. that's eventually becomes Spider-Man. Spider-Man's origin story. So cool to see a little advertisement like that at the bottom of that page Hmm. okay fantastic four number three the menace of the miracle man one of the greatest fantastic four villains of all time (laughs) (laughs) this may be one oh i'm sure he's come up again sometime but this may be one that uh from this from this volume that doesn't really get reused not very often i think they use them once a decade or so uh, for copyright purposes yeah right (laughs) (laughs) to renew the copyright usage and uh, i know that he is in um marvel two-in-one because Mm. he's in the first marvel two-in-one epic collection he's got a very different supernatural power set and um and i talk about that in my marvel two-in-one episode if you want to check that out uh but the miracle man has a plan he just wants to take over the world as many of the characters in this in this volume do um but he's going to do it by bringing a giant movie monster prop to life to run amok through the city i don't know how that's exactly going to accomplish his goal long term but it's definitely going to have a little bit of chaos right Uh, now i believe the general idea was to either discourage the fantastic four from stopping him or to defeat the fantastic four uh so that no one else would be in his way Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. that's the same as most of the, the plots in this, this volume, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, a couple of firsts for this one. Yep. First many of all, firsts. Many firsts. Uh, this is the first use of the tagline, World's Greatest Comic Magazine. Oh, yeah. And that remains on the Fantastic Four uh, comics. Um, for, for decades. For, for decades. Uh, it, it disappears every once in a yeah, while. And, and actually, uh, in our last... No, um, I forget exactly which epic collection it was, but uh, I think it was in the Simonson years, they would change the word from greatest to something else every so often just to see people would notice and <laughs> yeah. nobody noticed. Yeah, It's not currently on the comic. No, no, it's Which not. is too bad. Marvel, put that back. Put it back. Yeah. <laughs> Um, first appearance of the costumes, first appearance of the Fantastic Car, first appearance of the headquarters, the Baxter Building, though it's not um, mentioned to be in New York until next issue, and it's not called the Baxter Building uh, yet, until issue five, I think. It's also the first appearance of Johnny Storm's new look, the way that Jack Kirby draws the fire uh, with the the body being all red, right. instead of just flames instead all flames, over. Yeah. You can see his facial features. Yeah. Um, also, as a part of the Thing's costume, uh, Sue gives him a helmet. Well, and a full body jumpsuit. And a full body jumpsuit. And this helmet, he only wears it for about three panels in this comic, but that helmet is iconic. And it comes back many times throughout the Fantastic Four comics, especially in the 90s when his face is injured by Wolverine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he uses the helmet to hold himself together. Yeah. But it's like, it's so dumb because, uh, and I can, I, I'm glad that they kind of dealt with that in this one issue. When you have a really cool looking, visually appealing character like Thing, you're not going to put a costume on him. No. And he just goes, this is so restricting and tears it off. Yeah. And then he puts on another one and then he tears it off. <laughs> so it's great. Yep. Um, 
here we are in issue three, and we have three origin stories. <laughs> right. And yes. this just sets up the long tradition of retelling the origin. But again, yep. uh, if you miss the first two, you got to have that in there. And also, this title was bi-monthly at this point. So, you know, it, it, two months will go past between issues. You're trying to catch as many people as you can. No one is buying... Uh, I mean, people are buying comics on a regular basis, but 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 these new ones, like if you miss the first one and you miss the second one, you do need to have that. It, they couldn't just go and look it up on the internet to see or watch the movie to see if they could catch up, get up to speed on the origin story. Right. It's why maybe less so now with like um, Netflix shows and that kind of thing, but um, a lot of new TV shows have the same sort of episodic kind of... Um, format for the first five uh, episodes or so and then they start on the big more overarching plot right yeah you you gotta catch the people who stumble upon it by accident yeah one last first here uh, for this issue. It's the first time we get a cross-section slash map of the Fantastic Four's headquarters. They've, oh, had, yeah. they've had changes in, fanta- in, in headquarters over the years in terms of the actual building or just layouts. And we always get these really nice, neat-looking uh, cross-sections where they detail where all the different rooms are. I wish they did that more often these days. I find that they kind of yeah. don't do those kind of fun pages anymore. Yeah. Okay, so if so, the the main plot here we we find out the big reveal in this issue is that the Miracle Man doesn't actually control the giant monster. He just hypnotizes the entire world yes. to think that the monster is running amok and destroying things. Some big flaws. Big flaws. <laughs> because like it's being broadcast on television. Yeah. So how far is this guy's reach that he can hypnotize people who are watching TV at home miles and miles away? Right. And and maybe if they happen to be watching and the camera focused on him that he could do that through the tv but he's just in the crowd and then why if he's hypnotizing people why does he make it look like the ff are doing anything to defeat the monster like at one point reed tangles up the monster if the miracle man is hypnotized him so that the miracle man is saying what reed should be seeing then reed should always be seeing the monster succeeding not not failing and then uh right at the beginning of chapter three Sue and the Thing are well off approaching and they can see the human torch fighting the monster. Mm. So again, that goes to like, well, how far yeah. is his reach? Right. And why didn't he just hypnotize everybody to make him the king of the world? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not the greatest villain. Nope. Um, this issue, what? the only reason why this issue is important is because we get those firsts that yeah. we talked about. Was he any better in the Marvel 2-in-1? No, no, he was not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's move on to issue four. Okay, the coming of the Submariner. Very important issue here because one of the reasons why the Human Torch is a character in Fantastic Four is because there was a character called the Human Torch in the golden age of Marvel Comics way back in the 1930s. Um, He would now be known as S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Jim Hammond. Yeah, and he was on the West Coast Avengers for a time. But yeah, he's an android who can... Synthesoid? Sure, something like that. (laughs) Who can uh, set himself on fire. He was called the Human Torch and he was a extreme extremely popular character through world war ii to the point where he had a sidekick who was also on fire <laughs> named yeah. toro but it was there is a sort of a trifecta of of heroes 
in the golden age that were really popular there was human torch there was captain america and there was namor the submariner who appeared in marvel comics number one marvel mystery comics i think mm-hmm. it was called or something like that but yeah he was super popular yeah. so um when Fanta- when stanley created the fantastic four he stuck in the human torch because he knew that people would remember that that, that wasn't too long ago it was 20 years before this uh, so people are definitely going to remember the human torch so he could boost sales that way and now he's going to inter- reintroduce another golden age character this time not recreating it as a new character he's just pulling the old one right out of the mm-hmm. out of the past and bringing him into the present the submariner yeah and and at this point namor hasn't been seen in the comics in over five years which is not terribly long, but it's it's long for a for a beloved character. Um, or eleven years if you don't really count his failed attempt at a comeback. So um, he, the, his comic came to an end, and then a few years later they tried to sort of um, bring him back, and and it didn't do well. So then they canned it again. Yeah, that happened to Captain America as well. Yeah. So in this story, uh, first of all, Johnny has quit the team because he's a hot-headed, impulsive teenager. Right, right at the end of the last issue. Yep. I guess that's another thing that's important about the last issue. And and so now he's on his own and he kind of, in order to hide from the Fantastic Four who are scouring the city, he goes to uh, kind of the... the he, he goes to the Bowery in uh, New York, the sort of the slum area. Yeah, and that's where he finds Namor, who he doesn't... Namor is suffering from amnesia and he has a full beard and doesn't know who he is. And so Torch helps him regain his memory. Thinks he's doing a good thing. By throwing him in the ocean. It's yeah. like, well, what if he's not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully he can swim. He does regain his memory, though, and he fl- go, swims all the way back to Atlantis to find out that humans have destroyed it with their pollution, and then angry, and dis- he declares war on the entire surface world. This sets up yeah. everything for, uh, for the Namor going forward here. <laughs> um, very specifically, he says he detects radiation, and so Atlantis has been destroyed by atomic bomb testing underwater. Oh, yeah, that was probably pr- pretty topical at the time. Yeah. But I, one of these iconic moments in Fantastic Four history is when John Johnny Storm is burning the fascia hair off of Namor. Oh yeah, that one's also been uh, redone yep, quite I'm a few sure, times. I'm sure. The this also contains more examples of the Fantastic Four kind of being jerks. Oh man, the thing is so over aggressive in this issue. Oh man, he bursts through walls and and throws a car and, and for no reason. There's the the one moment on page 86 mm-hmm. where he's looking for the, the torch. He's like, I can I can feel the uh, the heat. What does he say here? Before I knock myself out searching the whole city, I'll play a hunch. That brat used to hang around here fiddling with hot rods every chance he got. Hey, I can feel the heat. He's inside. And then here's what's the the kicker right here. It's the thing. You're bland, right? It's the thing, torch. And now I'll teach you what happens to deserters <laughs> you and your flame don't scare me now i know you can't move while you're burning because there's gasoline over here one spark and your pals are all done for and he picks up a car he's gonna throw it at the human torch <laughs> it's like holy cow these guys this is such a different thing than we're used to yeah we would never see this kind of action um because he means it here it's not just oh, yeah. a jovial play fighting that they usually get into right he actually means to harm johnny storm here and then like reed he wants to talk to these guys on motorcycles so he just reaches over and grabs one off the motorcycle. Oh yeah, the motorcycles probably go skidding off. And right, they're 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 done yeah. for. No repairing. And Reed would not do that now. And and Sue, she's like, oh, I'm thirsty. I'll just drink this soda here on the counter, <laughs> which she didn't order. It just belongs to somebody else. <laughs> 
So strange. Yeah. Um, but this uh, this issue also has another first. It is the beginning of one of the greatest love triangles in Marvel history. Right. Uh, between Sue and Reed and Sue and Namor. And we have a poll on uh, on who's your favorite couple, uh, <laughs> Sue and Reed or Sue and Namor. Who do you think she should be with? So you can insert it right there. <clears throat> if we do it, this episode oh, yeah. might be, have to be split in right. two. So you, you could cut it. Yeah, whatever. Um, the, sorry. No. The love triangle is very interesting interesting because I think that it's just a, a side comment that Namor makes about Sue being beautiful, the most beautiful creature he's ever seen or something like that. It's not anything really stand out and it doesn't play into this plot, I, I don't think. No. It's not until the next time Namor comes around in Fantastic Four number six that we find out that uh, Sue might have some reciprocal feelings. And that his, and that Namor's motivation is driven by his feelings for, for Sue. Mm-hmm. So all that said about you know them being jerks and stuff, um, it does actually have some pretty good examples, um, uh, artistic examples of their powers. Uh, like at the beginning of chapter three, where Reed is stretching up from the ground and he's holding on to the helicopter to try and talk to the guys in the helicopter. Yeah, that's a really neat example of of uh, of his powers. Or on the train, he's stretching down to uh, talk yep. to, to talk to people on a train. Yep. Or uh, uh, um, the idea that um, the Human Torch could make a tornado by like whirring around. This issue also has advertisements at the bottom of the pages. What is the Hulk? The Hulk is coming. Who is the Hulk? You've never seen anyone like the Hulk. Very cool that they included those in the Epic Collection. Um, and and just an odd way to to do advertising too. It's not you don't have any pictures to go with it. It's not an actual advertisement. Are those in the Masterwork? No, they're not. Ha, ah, cool. Issue number five, Prisoners of Dr. Doom. Um, here we have a guy named Dr. Doom. He's sort of trying to manipulate these um, chess piece figures of the Fantastic Four around. Uh, he says, they'll be my pawns in the hands of Dr. Doom. So once, once again, we have, uh, we sort of jump right into the story. This Dr. Doom guy exists. And then a little bit later, we have to back up to get his origin. Um, He's also trying to take over the world, but he seems to have some sort of connection to the Fantastic Four, Uh, more personal than, say, Namor or any of these other people. It's not that he just wants to get them out of the way. He really wants to take them down. Yeah. Uh, His his grand plot, though, is to steal, uh, send them back in time, send the Fantastic Four back in time to steal Blackbeard's treasure because... The gems have been enchanted by Merlin and would grant him immortality. Yep, sounds like a good plot. Yeah. A bunch of firsts. Yeah, I mean, of course, of of course, first Doctor Doom. Yep. But first time travel. First time travel, specifically the time platform. Yep. But time travel in general, yeah. Which plays such a major role. Um, Just time travel, traveling to different anything, whether it's times or dimensions or whatever. It's like that's more of the exploration we talk about. Jonathan Hickman played with time travel quite a bit in his run. We we see here also that Sue's main role, because her only power really is to turn invisible, her main role on the team is to be the damsel in distress. Um, yes and no. I mean, she, yeah, yes, absolutely. And she's often in, in, in left terms of, behind. In terms of and, plot. Yeah. And she's often sent to to be the one that uh, takes care of, of kids or has to stay behind for whatever reason while the men do their work. You know, it is that kind of um, yeah. overprotective 
uh, male attitude that was fairly, you know, very commonplace in, mm-hmm. the, in the time of writing. But she saves everybody in this issue. That's true. She She's the only one, even she does it while she's tied up. <laughs> she manages to um, set off a, a machine to blow up in Doom's face and rescues all the other three before they run out of air. It's like she saves the day in this story. Mm-hmm. If it were for her, they'd yep. all be dead. Yep, that's true. And it's really nice to see that uh, get developed into who she is uh, today, who is very a very strong, positive female role model and arguably the strongest, most powerful of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. She had a miniseries right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or she did a little while ago yeah. uh, where she's a spy. She returns back to her spy roots. Yes. Is she supposed to have been a spy at this point in history? I can't remember what that miniseries read. Yeah, it's kind of, they play around a little. Well, it's the sliding time scale, right? Yeah. So, yeah, she would have been a spy before this technically, but when this is written, she's only like... 18 or something so yeah she and johnny are supposed to be very young at this but like she's still she's graduated from high school like johnny's currently in high school but sue is not that's right yeah um the one question i have about this is whatever happened to doom's pet tiger (laughs) yeah right uh oh oh also the ropes on the net that are dropped over the baxter building yep they're made of asbestos because <laughs> whenever you fight the human torch in this era yeah everything is going to be made out of asbestos that's right so bad so bad for johnny <laughs> probably dying of some sort of poisoning yep i love the paradox that this creates oh where, yeah totally where uh ben Grimm ends up being like he ends up being blackbeard he is the blackbeard of the historical pirates that we know of in history books <laughs> yeah so oh, that's totally. kind of cool that they kind of tie that all together and uh and you know there's always this thing about about time travel where you're not supposed to affect the past but ben definitely does that in this sense yeah and uh here we see um an example of ben really always wanting to fit in he's always making comments about oh the rest of you look normal i don't look normal and uh so here he finds a place where he can fit in with the pirates they don't care what he looks like because he's super strong and can like steal anything yeah so he actually uh, seriously considers sticking around. That's something that happens a lot with Ben in these early days. It's like, oh, I found a... It's why he stays on Battleworld as well um, after the Secret Wars. Which leads to Alicia marrying Johnny, which leads to like one of the... What I think is one of the greatest stories. Also, uh, we forgot to mention this. Back in a couple of the earlier issues, there are times where the thing just sort of changes back to Ben Grimm. Yeah, for no reason. For no reason. Yeah. And they never really explain that. And then they later on, there there are a couple examples where he changes back because of uh, a lightning strike or something like that. But the, they never really explain those ones where he just changes for no reason. I kind of think that he they stopped doing that when the Hulk got his, his own mag. And that was basically what Hulk did, was change back and forth between Bruce right. Banner and, and Hulk. And as yeah. soon as that comic came out, Ben stopped changing randomly because uh, I think those two characters were too similar. Which, which has happened by this point because in the yep. beginning of this issue you see uh the human torch reading a, a hulk magazine yep. and saying oh this guy reminds me of the thing this issue has one of my favorite panels of, by jack kirby it's a very just a, a one-off you wouldn't even notice it kind of a panel it's the second to last page of this issue in this collection it's page 128 but it's page 22 of the issue it's the first panel where you see all four of them together and ben says 
do. I'm going to take this joint apart till I get my hands on that doom creep. And then Reed is uh, shown holding Ben back. And he says, no, hold it. He's probably got every inch of this castle booby-trapped. And Sue says, you're right, Reed. He must have recovered by now and he'll be more dangerous than ever. And Johnny says, but we've got to do something. And he's like leaning forward. It's like that panel has some great Jack Kirby art. I, I love his style here before he comes his way more stylized 1970s yeah. Jack Kirby. This panel has just excellent characterization in the facial features, in their poses, in the words that they say, uh, everything about it. Like you only need the one panel and you know exactly all about all four of these characters. Aside yeah. from like their superpowers, oh, yeah. but but as far as their personality goes, this is all you need. And I think it's just such a wonderful panel in terms of uh, even the composition, the way it's laid out, the way Reed is holding Ben back, the way Johnny is leaning forward to go into action because he's yeah. impulsive, the way Sue is in the background and even the way that your eye goes from left to right and follows the the path of all four of their heads yeah and it kind of makes a little bit of an arc, arc. Yeah. and then the balloons do the same thing it forms an arc too there's a synergy between the balloons and the picture and i think this is something that doesn't happen as much in modern comics uh not just like you like you were saying the synergy between the art and the balloons but just the sense of motion from their stances a lot of modern uh comic panels are like individual work of art and they're great they look good but then they don't necessarily have this sense of implied motion that this panel does you also would rarely ever get all four characters speaking in the same panel right <laughs> but stan did that all the time shall we go on to issue number six yes captives of the deadly duo this is an important one because this is our first supervillain team up <laughs> yes issue number four had the submariner issue number five had dr doom well issue number six has submariner and dr doom and they team up fairly regularly over the years yeah there's even a comic series called supervillain team up in the <laughs> 70s where dr doom and namor team up for like the almost the entire yeah. series this is also the first mention of the baxter building like by name by name yep uh and it's just the fact that they go to the entrance and it says baxter building on it they don't even call it the baxter building and they do another like a revised schematic or a cross section yeah it has a couple extra floors the rest of it's the same it's also the first mention of unstable molecules as oh the yeah that's behind, important yeah as the reasoning behind the uh um their costumes and i think between that and pym particles those are like two of the greatest marvel inventions um yeah i guess so <laughs> would adamantium be a marvel invention? oh yeah yeah i guess yeah that could be there's got to be more yeah i'm sure there's lots well more you know vibranium it. and iron man suit and all that kind but of no, stuff vi but no well iron man suit maybe vibranium is a natural resource in the okay. marvel universe sure. so that doesn't yeah. count <laughs> it's not created <laughs> right one interesting thing is that uh, the Baxter Building has been the Fantastic Four's headquarters for a long time. In the 90s, it changed to the Four Freedoms Plaza, but then after that was destroyed, it changed back to the Baxter Building. They rebuilt the Baxter Building. And it's actually changed hands quite a number of times. Do you know who owns it now, as of this recording? Um, J. Jonah Jameson. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Peter Parker, who owned it for Parker oh, Industries. Oh, right, of course, yeah, which yeah, yeah. technically was Otto Octavius. Yep. But uh, after 
Parker Industries shut down, it was vacant for a while because the Fantastic Four were off. Well, after Secret Wars, they were not on the planet. They were in between realities, recreating the multiverse. And it became occupied by a new group of heroes who were basically just trying to become famous and uh, make money called the Fantastics with an right. eight. Yeah. And when the Fantastic Four came back, they started living in Ben's apartment building uh, on Yancey Street. Right. And so Reed said, well, you guys can have it. <laughs> so it's now owned by the Fantastics and that's their base of operations. Funny. I-, I find it really interesting at the beginning of this issue that there are some people that don't believe the Fantastic Four exist. Right. Well, they don't live in a world where superheroes are a commonplace thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but, and they go, oh, yeah, no, that's just legend. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they get pushed over by the Invisible Woman <laughs> again. So in this one, Doctor Doom convinces Namor to help him he's like you haven't attacked the service world in a long time uh people are starting to think you're not a threat anymore so you should probably go up in this in the surface and and you know show your muscle around a little bit <laughs> and and i'll tell you what you know we'll take over the world and you can have all the water and i'll take all the other stuff <laughs> yeah there's more w- water anyway on the earth you know a <laughs> good deal for you there's a great scene where he's just manipulating Namor and you think Namor is so smart. He He's so full of himself, but he's easily manipulated by Dr. Doom uh, to the point where later on Namor has to team up with Fantastic Four in order to take Do- Doom down. Yeah. I really liked the part toward the end of that uh, that scene on the top of page nine of this issue where you just see the different emotion that Namor goes through from like the sorrow of losing all his people to the anger and the the the, lo- the the lust for revenge that he gets by the end of that panel. Mm-hmm. And there's interesting development with uh, Sue and Namor as well. She's hiding a a picture of him in uh, in the bookshelf. <laughs> I think <laughs> Behind that's the books funny. And Johnny finds it. Johnny finds it. Yeah. And I think they're kind of mean to her because uh, I mean I know Namor you know tried to take over the planet or whatever, but um, they kind of established that he was only doing what he you know what was best for his people. He was he's not that bad of a of a guy really. And they like they they ridicule her for it and they burn up the picture. Yeah. Like Sue and and Reed are not dating at this time. Not not really. I don't think. Uh, they, they, there hasn't been an instance well, where they, they, they say haven't, they haven't that they're had, a couple. Yeah, so so they they are dating at oh. this point. Uh, in the first issue, um, uh, Sue says or Reed says, uh, "Thank heaven you're all right, my darling." Yeah, and, actually, uh, I found that now yeah. it, when they're in the car. Don't say it, Reed. I'm your fiance. Where right. where you go, I go. But right. that's. That's clearly forgotten right after well, the first issue. Yeah, they, they don't really mention it or bring it up. And it's not that they're not dating. Um, later on in one of the other issues, they, um, when this comes up again, uh, Reed says, oh, but, you know, I always thought that you and I would, you know, after some time, implying getting married. Yeah. But it just shows that maybe he's not paying as much attention to her as he should be. Maybe you could read it like that, but yeah. it's like which is also which is also a recurring theme throughout the definitely comics. for sure. They actually do get engaged later on um, in the comics. So yeah. the that this first engagement to the fiance <laughs> mentioned in the first issue is clearly um, forgotten about. It's it's, a, they, it's retconned out. They probably broke it off because of Namor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, go to page 147, mm-hmm. which is page 17 in this issue here. So they're in outer space, okay? Yep. They're in outer space. They uh, they put on these helmets, yep. and then Johnny opens a window and gets and, and goes to fly out. He and then flames he, on. He flames on, but then he goes outside, and, and, he flames, and the flame goes away. He says, my flame, it burned for a moment and suddenly snuffed out. I forgot. There's no oxygen in space to feed it. 
But what, what they forget also, what the artist and the writer forget, is that there's also a vacuum in space. So as soon as he opened that window, everybody yeah. should, have, should have been sucked out the window. And all the oxygen that was inside would have rushed out. Yep. Um, but that's okay. I mean, they're all yeah. wearing those helmets and stuff. Yeah. Uh, we have a weird thing here uh, where Namor, uh, who has realized the error of his ways, goes to attack Dr. Doom. And he grabs onto a metal door and is electrocuted. Oh, yeah. And he says, you didn't kill me with that electric charge. Like an electric eel, I absorbed it, stored it, and now I'm returning it. He also uses his ability in Fantastic Four number nine. And I don't know that he ever uses it again. He's got a whole bunch of different abilities, like fish abilities. There's another one where he like has a special fish radar vision or yeah. something. <laughs> They're just kind of uh, writing a whole bunch of stuff for him yeah. that doesn't necessarily have to do with anything else yeah but this is why we now have continuity editors <laughs> yeah um well especially because one of namor's big things is that he accuses humans of dumping garbage in the ocean and then what does he do with dr doom's jet he, he dumps, dumps it, it in, in the, the ocean, ocean. <laughs> well you want to go on to issue number seven sure uh, issue number seven is titled Prisoners of Kurgo, Master of Planet X. That's a Stanley title if I ever heard one. <laughs> yep. Planet X is a planet of super evolved, technologically advanced creatures who have created space travel, but have not been interested in space travel. <laughs> That's uh, so funny. Yeah. So we can do it. We just don't want to do it. Exactly. So that gets them in trouble because there's a giant meteor headed toward their planet and they've only got two rocket ships or spaceships. No, clearly not enough for their population. So the great idea of the master of Planet X is send one of them to Earth to capture the Fantastic Four and bring them here, force them to help them out, and maybe they get back to Earth, maybe they don't. I don't exactly know what they're trying to accomplish because the plan, I think they wanted them to just build more spaceships. Or something, yeah. I don't know what they thought. Like, if he, <laughs> if this planet is so te uh, technologically superior and so much more advanced, what are the Fantastic Four going to do? Right. And it's like, these guys, I mean, I, I guess they want to try and get them to find a way to stop the asteroid from hitting them. Maybe that's Maybe, what it is yeah. or, or something. Or if a thing can just punch it into yeah. a million pieces. You can definitely do yeah. that. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Planet X is supposed to be a Krypton analog. Oh, yeah? You think so? Well, because that would be Krypton, like, very peaceful, full of science and technology and they only planet's have, about to explode planet's about to explode and they only have one spaceship <laughs> <laughs> but they have no young so they cannot send their young to to earth right well they came up with a different solution the solution is brilliant shrink everybody then everyone can fit on the ship oh yeah and then just make them bigger again except except this he again, doesn't the, except this again shows uh the callousness of reed in these early issues yeah he, he tells them that they have a growth uh, enlarging uh, enlarging uh, gas but it was uh, but he didn't make one for them it was all a, a uh, not a joke but uh, a ruse a ruse yeah yeah, yeah and what does he say at the end it's like oh they're all once they get to the new planet they're all small the size doesn't matter size is yeah. relative so right. it's fine except well if you're gonna cut down a tree now instead of taking like 10 chops now it's gonna take like 5 million chops depends on what planet you go to that's true planet of skinny trees <laughs> you know <laughs> Um, one other thing that I liked about this issue is that uh, the Fantastic Four are invited to a dinner, a Congress dinner, and their reaction to um, actually not wanting to go to the dinner is quite refreshing because it shows each of their own concerns or insecurities about their own powers, whereas most other uh, heroes at this time would just be like, "Sure, I'll go to that dinner. I don't, you know, I I know my powers." Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good. It's a good character development moment. Uh, did 
you notice that there is a spelling error or a text error on the last page when Reed is talking about his enlarging gas? I think I did. Where's the issue? Oh, maybe not. Maybe they fixed it. In Second to the last panel, it says, Are you sure the enlarging gas will work when they reach their new planet, Reed? After all, you never had time to test it. There was no reducing gas, Sue. They definitely changed that in the Masterworks. Really? It says yeah. enlarging? It says enlarging. Okay. And it actually, if you take a look closely, um, you can see little dots of where the, the letters underneath would have been, and <laughs> okay. they probably just whited out over top yeah. of it. So they definitely don't fix that mistake for the epic collections, which I think is which nice. Which is kind of nice. Yeah. 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 I mean... It's authentic. It's, yeah. Warts and all kind of a attitude. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, one last comment. There's another first in this issue. First time Johnny Storm goes supernova. Oh, yes. Definitely. It's a, um, his, one of his ultimate powers is to go as hot as a star. And, and he knows it's only going to last for a second, but that's all you need at that heat. Yeah. And it's pretty wild because he like flies straight at, uh, at, at uh, Kurgo yeah. and, or Kurgo's robot or something, right? Yeah. And Sue gets in the way and Johnny's going to go right at her. But the, the distance it shows in the panel is like she would have been burnt to a crisp just totally. being in close proximity to yeah. a supernova <laughs> the human torch. But that's the Silver Age for you. Yeah. Issue 8. Oh, Issue 8. Prisoner of the Puppet Master. Yes. This, I actually have this original issue. It's the oldest Fantastic Four issue I have. It can't be in very good condition, though. It's in pretty decent condition, actually. It's not really? too bad. I mean, oh, I haven't wow. had it CGC graded or anything, <laughs> but so I don't know the exact number. But uh, it's not falling apart. The pages are all intact, and oh, nice. it's all there. Um, I bought it many years ago at a comic convention. Guy wanted $90, and I talked him down to $75. Bucks. It's the most I've spent on any comic, any single comic book. <laughs> That's actually pretty good. It, it's, it's, it's definitely increased in value today. Yeah, it's probably your one issue that's actually actually worth something um yeah <laughs> yeah although i have the first appearance of harley quinn so oh yes yeah <laughs> yeah right getting up there as well not as much as fantastic for number four it's not the oldest marvel comic i have because i have some from the 50s that are like the westerns or millie the model but right. those ones aren't as important as as this issue what i'm really hoping is that when uh, as of this recording right now there is no fantastic four in the mcu i'm really hoping that yep. the mcu fantastic four movie will feature puppet master as the main villain and this comic <laughs> will skyrocket even more value uh. <laughs> but yeah this is the first appearance of not only the puppet master but also alicia masters who becomes a very major player in fantastic four um one of the only very steady supporting cast members that sticks around throughout the years yeah and her story is very tragic she is the daughter of puppet master's ex-wife who's died uh, so she, Puppet Master is her stepfather. And, and he makes a big point of correcting her when she calls him father. Yeah. He does, I am not your father. I am your stepfather. Yeah. And he just doesn't care for her lover. He's stuck with her, basically. Uh, and to make matters worse, she's blind. He's stuck with this blind child that isn't even his. And he's very resentful of that um, and uses her for his own purposes time and time again. Yeah. Uh, he says, it's lucky for me that she's blind. She has no idea of my, what my quote work really is so it's, uh you know obviously she does have a sense of morality and if she knew what he really was doing she'd probably like turn him into the police or something and alicia is very is, is played up to be very helpless because of her uh, disability in this one and then as they develop her character more and more she becomes more confident in who she is and her own abilities uh, and using her other senses and such to the yeah. point where she's uh is quite an active member of the of the 
team <laughs> very these, these old days. very yeah yep so the puppet master uh once upon a time stumbled across some radioactive clay and he found that if he made a uh a little doll out of somebody uh with this radioactive clay he could actually control them and so he does this to stage a prison break and to try to get the Fantastic Four to maybe attack themselves. I love the Puppet Master's design. Jack Kirby gives him this very grotesque kind of face. Almost like him, a marionette. It's, it's very mimic. It's, I'm sure it's intentional that he's trying to make him look like a like a Howdy Doody or a yeah the marionette kind of a face because yeah. he's the Puppet Master. But it's an iconic look that has stuck through the ages. Uh, you can't... There was a period where, where I think Gene Colan tried to look make him look more normal um, later on in the 60s but he's he is always known for his huge lips and his freaky kind of looking eyes and his big bald head and his big bald head <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's good this is a good issue i really like this one yeah i i don't i don't really have a lot to say about it but it's really good yeah uh the only thing that's kind of weird is that alicia looks like sue to yeah. the point where she can put on a wig and reed doesn't even recognize yeah it's not sue uh maybe that's why ben instantly falls in love with alicia oh could be <laughs> because could be because <laughs> like, she, she looks like sue yeah i don't know yeah uh, a couple of the firsts one first first cure first attempt at a cure for uh for ben oh yeah and also first time reed uses his powers to uh reflect bullets oh okay yeah you know, I was I was just saying that I think I like this issue a lot, but actually I like the first half of it <laughs> because the story with the puppet master is really compelling. But all of a sudden, there's a point where he the, the jailbreak he, part. He well, no, not, even that's fine. I mean, he's testing his powers on different things, but then the, the Fantastic Four get to his apartment and he has a giant mentally controlled robot there, which seems so out of place. And then he escapes on a winged horse. Like he, what? He uses those giant robots quite often. It's issue three three fifty. I believe, where um, he controls the new warriors. In that issue, he also uses a very giant robot to attack the Fantastic Four. And I guess maybe once that's established as part of, of his character, which I yeah. guess they're establishing that in this very first appearance. Well, he the radioactive clay, and then it's okay. But that one, it just seemed it seemed out of place in this one issue Straight, because yeah. he, had the, he had the clay and he had the dolls. Isn't that his thing? No, he's also got giant robots. And oh, he also has a giant winged horse. Str- yeah, stranger than the, the, than the, the, the uh, robot, I think, was the winged horse. Yeah. The jet-propelled winged horse. Yeah, right. <laughs> It's so strange. But the ending is nice. I mean, it's a very... Well, and it's got the twist, like you said. Yeah, it's got a... I was going to say, it's got a very 1950s Stanley type of an ending where it's like, we don't we don't exactly know how it's all ending. It's, it's ambiguous. There's a... Could this have been the case? Maybe it was this way. I like it. I like that part. Yeah. Issue number nine. The end of the Fantastic Four. So once again, we find Namor. This one's great. So the yeah. Fantastic Four are, are, are out of money. And, and this is another first because yeah. they actually go back bankrupt a few times and reed comes up with all of these inventions and patents and then at some point he has to sell them all off yeah and so this is the first time that happens in this instance it says they that he invested them in stocks and this is topical because yeah. um the stock market had been had been rising ever since the great depression and it actually peaked in 1961 and when uh, kennedy was president and there was this big fall after that it was called they call it the kennedy slide of 1962 where the stock stock market took a huge crash and it seems that reed lost all of his money here at this point and that's why he's that's why they reference the stocks here and so they get a mysterious letter offering them a movie deal they'll get a million dollars in cash 
if they just show up and be part of this movie. It turns out that this is uh, this movie is being financed by the Submariner, who uses pirate money. <laughs> yep. Oh, maybe he has those jewels that Doctor Doom wanted. That's why Namor is immortal. Yeah. Which is actually kind of funny because um, when they find out about those uh, those jewels and they dump them in the ocean, they say something along the lines of, "What if the Submariner should ever find these?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Submariner over many years uh, using Atlantean history. Uh, they've recorded where all of these pirate treasures are buried and then they go and dig them up. Uh, this... And so he uses that to finance... Uh, mm-hmm. this this movie and this or, sets himself yeah. up at, like Namor's always known as a rich person like there's yeah. the 90s series with John Byrne where he's he he's has a, Oracle Inc and yeah, that actually was also purchased with pirate money yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's got a lot of it they don't really play into that with his character that much these days yeah uh, so they so they go to Hollywood um, to be part of this movie and uh, they go they're so uh, with all the celebrities around here nobody's even noticing us and there are a bunch of caricatures of famous people here and i could recognize some of them but there are a few that i had to look up yeah so i i had to look up a couple of them too but i instantly recognized uh john wayne the cowboy of course I actually don't know that it's John Wayne. I was looking into this. I think it actually might be James Arness from Gunsmoke because the woman is Amanda Blake from Gunsmoke who was married oh, to him. Okay. That's... But, but it does kind of look like John Wayne as well. Yeah, maybe it's not then. Uh, John Wayne didn't usually, like he usually had, uh, when he was a cowboy, he usually had a uh, handkerchief around his collar mm-hmm. and he didn't have the star. Oh, he he was, the... he's never a sheriff? Well, sometimes maybe, but not always. Okay. So that the, the, outfit, the outfit looks a lot more like what um, uh, James Arness his uh, character in Gunsmoke would look like. Well, the guy beside him is definitely Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Oh, yeah. You can't just mistake that silhouette, yep. the profile silhouette. Yep. And I instantly recognized uh, Bing Crosby at the bottom. Yes. Standing beside Jack Benny. Yep. Yep. And then I believe beside Alfred Hitchcock is supposed to be Charles Bronson. Uh, yes. Yes, with the mustache, for sure. And then the last person on this page, this one I had to look up, is Bob Hope. No. But in, uh, no, 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 no. Sorry. No. Bob Hope is standing beside Bing Crosby. That's definitely Bob Hope's face. This guy here is, this is Jack Benny. No, I think they made a mistake there. Because um, because Bob Hope the um, was in a movie called The Ghost Breakers in 1940, uh, where he's in a hotel that's haunted. And I think that that's why his um, uh, on at the top of page seven of this issue, uh, he has the comment, ghost, I'll settle for a ghost any day. And I think that the, um, uh, I believe it's Dean Martin who is standing next to him. He says, what's wrong, Jack? I think they actually got the, uh, the, the names mixed up on the caricatures. But the caricature, like it looks, Bob Hope looks like Bob Hope there at the bottom of uh, Bike Standing Beside Bing Crosby. Mm. Like that's definitely Bob Hope. Let me just look up Jack mm. Benny. I thought that looked more like Jack Benny. Inconclusive. I, I, yeah. It, <laughs> Yeah, it could go either way. That... Yeah, but but either way, the consensus is that those two are supposed to be uh, Jack Benny and Bob Hope. Okay. That's my understanding, at least. Well, I guess maybe Jack Kirby could uh, take a lesson about caricat- drawing caricatures. Yeah, <laughs> but the rest bit. of them are pretty spot on, I think. Yeah, except for the John Wayne one. Thought it looked like John Wayne, but I think I'm off. I've only seen two John Wayne movies so <laughs> out of the hundreds he's made. <laughs> um, on page nine of this issue, we have The Thing at the Beach... And it's full of all of these like muscle people doing their flexing and showing off and hoisting ladies and stuff. And I always see these things in like in the advertisements, you know, oh, go pound sand and all that. And I always wonder, (laughs) were the beaches really like that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Always full of people showing off their muscles and stuff. Yeah, could be maybe. Anyway, the uh, the movie scenes that the uh, that Namor puts them through are all traps. 
uh, designed to uh, defeat them. Yeah. Uh, with the main goal of um, getting rid of the rest of them and then marrying Sue. And then here's another instance of Sue being treated like the damsel in distress, but then she takes matters into her own hands. It's like she's, she says, um, I'm still alive, so you technically haven't beat the Fantastic Four yet. Come and get me. And right. so and that's very commendable, right? She yeah. jumps into action and yeah, does she, it. She always starts off as the damsel, but then steps up when she needs to. Yep. And even to the point now where she she defends Namor as well. She comes between right. the, the warring factions yeah. and acts as a buffer between them, uh, which is also a very brave thing to do. Uh, and Namor has, here's the one, this is the issue where I said Namor has his radar sense. Uh, yes. The radar sense of the cave fish from the lowest depths of the sea. <laughs> his eyes glow. There's some weird Kirby drawings. I think he draws Namor kind of weird sometimes. The one at the bottom of page 21 in this issue uh, page 226 in this collection and there is also a a panel um, in the Doctor Doom team up where he's like trying to fly forward he's jumping forward from the water Kirby tries to do his best force perspective there and it just doesn't look good at all it looks like he's trying to do a belly flop yeah so in the end Fantastic Four let Namor go back into the sea Namor kind of swallows his pride and goes and he still makes the movie and it comes out a couple months later which is weird because like what they shot is like random fight scenes (laughs) you can fix it all in editing (laughs) that's right And yeah, and so the Fantastic Four come out and I don't know how much money they spent on that movie, but we know what kind of a Fantastic Four movie is made for a million dollars. I was going to say, like, uh, it didn't actually come out then. It actually sat on a shelf until 1994. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, man. And there's a Fantastic Four feature page featuring Human Torch. Is this in the masterwork? No. Oh, uh, we missed one, though. The We missed the one with the uh, unstable molecules. Oh, right. That's right. That's in the at the end of yeah. issue number eight, uh, where, fan, where Human Torch reveals that his clothes are made of unstable molecules so that's why he can wear them and still be on fire and the other one he talks more about his his ability to fly which is attributed to the heat making his atoms lighter than air but I, and I guess their thinking is like, well, hot air rises. And hot air makes things like expand. Like if you think of a hot air balloon, yeah. you use the fire and heat to push it upward. Well, that would be more of a more accurate one. Here it's actually saying like, no, no, his molecules become less dense because of the heat. That's not true. No, but I think, I think maybe the thinking might be more along the lines of, well, when you heat something up, it expands. So like his molecules get further apart, which would be less dense and therefore they would rise. <laughs> I don't know. But it's still like, there's still the same amount of molecules. Oh yeah. It, and so, he doesn't, he doesn't grow. No. Nope. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's very strange. I don't know. But I mean, hey, that's science at the time. Yep. That's comic book, comic book logic there. Yep. Uh, we've made it halfway through this book and we are almost at two hours. So huh. I think we should probably call it now yeah. and do the last, the last nine issues yep. in the next episode. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I expected that we would talk more in general about these issues since they are so formative for Fantastic Four and for the Marvel Universe in general. So I don't mind splitting this episode into two parts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, yeah, I guess we'll call it a night and we will see you next time on the Epic Marvel Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.